Good evening, friends. This is your host for Valley Writers Read, Franz Weinschenk, here to welcome you to a show where all the writers you hear come from right here in the San Joaquin Valley. You know, those of us who live in the very center of the valley sometimes forget that there are literally thousands of square miles of foothills, real hills, and very rugged mountains just to the east of us. Well, tonight we're featuring two stories that give us some idea about what living in that part of the valley can be like. Our first story takes place in the area around Bass Lake, Oakhurst, and North Fork, all of them at about the 3,000-foot elevation. Our writer is Erlene Holguin, who is a retired parole agent for the state of California. Erlene put in 26 years of service in the criminal justice system, and except for the names of some of the characters in her narrative tonight, the story she's going to read to us is absolutely true. She calls it The North Fork Caper. And here she is, folks, Erlene Holguin. The North Fork Caper The small mountain community of Bass Lake, California, rests at an elevation of three to 5,000 feet and is approximately 15 miles from the southern entrance to Yosemite National Park. It borders the communities of Oakhurst, North Fork, and Coarsegold. The community of Mariposa is another 45 minutes from the center of Oakhurst. As a seasoned parole agent with 24 years of service in the criminal justice system, and in my 10th year of service with the State of California, Department of Parole and Community Services Division, this was my geographic area of responsibility. The sparse, however very busy caseload of approximately 85 releasees from California state prisons and who were then mountain residents was only a portion of the 185 total cases under my supervision. The remaining 100 or so cases were considered a paper caseload in that they were undocumented or illegal aliens who when released from state prison, were either deported or required to report to parole. However, while they were in custody, the movement of those cases within the criminal justice system required close scrutiny so as not to violate any of the soon-to-be parolees' guaranteed rights. Upon release, most continued their errant behavior and thus contributed to the weight of the criminal element in each of the caseloads of the nine agents in the Madera Parole Unit. A point of clarification should be made that individuals serving time in custody in state prisons when released are released to parole supervision, as opposed to individuals who serve local custody time and are subsequently released to probation supervision. Having made that clarification, I include the following waiver and qualification. The names of the guilty included in the following narrative have indeed been changed, simply out of courtesy. Should the facts that follow be familiar, by coincidence or otherwise, it remains that, having been convicted by the courts, those records and those names have already been made public, and certainly you know who you are. The names of the innocent remain protected. 
Lastly, the names of the involved professionals or the good guys will be used as history will record and the world at large will know of the fine work you accomplished in furthering the safety and well-being of these communities. May 19, 1989, a Friday, approximately 8.15 a.m. The weather in Bass Lake is chilly but clear and crisp. The fresh, clean smell of the tall cedars and pines refreshes my brain and clears my mind as I take a quick inventory and review my stops for the day. I do not want to miss anything important as I plan for an earlier end to my work week. This is Friday, and Friday evening has been planned with dinner and a play at the local dinner theater. I checked my radio and equipment in my vehicle, a 1987 white Jeep Cherokee four-wheel drive. The Jeep had been requisitioned and authorized after two years of mountain driving in a Ford Taurus over washed-out gullies, rutted roads, and driveways of red, thick, and slippery clay. I tossed the navy blue canvas bag, a large white leather band with large blue letters which spelled parole, emblazoned across into the back seat. The bag contained a multitude of items necessary for the performance of a job which was carried out in a very low profile. That is, neither jeep nor agent showed any visible law enforcement markings. And so Maggie and I began our day. Maggie? Oh, yeah, my partner, named after one of the most powerful and respected women in England's history, Britain's Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Maggie then transitioned to the Iron Lady and became the most fitting name for my Lady Smith, an eight-shot semi-automatic Smith & Wesson, with my name and badge number 1055 engraved on her barrel. Maggie, I should note, was a gift to me from my husband and son following the successful completion of Rangemaster training for the Department of Corrections Parole Division. In 1991, I was one of five women in the state of California who were invited to compete in Rangemaster training for the department. This did not sit well with the men in the department who had been on the two-year waiting list. However, we were successful in the monumental undertaking and proudly added Rangemaster to our credentials. The morning went very quickly with home calls and testing. First stop, the cat lady, so named for the 15 or so felines with whom she and her mother shared their two-bedroom home. She had not made it to the office for testing as her mother's car had broken down while en route. The residents' verification across the lake for the construction thief whose partner guaranteed both residence and employment. Lastly, two brothers, both convicted rapists, who lived in the local mobile home park with their elderly grandparents. My intent was to drop off the paperwork alerting law enforcement of one of the locals who was currently on want status with parole. A no-bail warrant had been requested and issued by the Board of Prison Terms on one of our more notorious cases. The warrant would be in the state system within 24 hours. The State Board of Prison Terms would then retain jurisdiction on that warrant until adjudication or disposition only by that board. The Bass Lake Sheriff's Department is a substation of the Madera County Sheriff's Department and is located adjacent to the Bass Lake Courthouse and Fire Department.
Its complement of deputies, referred to as mountain deputies, is eight or nine, with a full-day complement in service at any given time of approximately four or five deputies. While I was the sole agent supervising the mountain communities when in need, I had only to click on my radio receiver. Madera 2, Parole 7. Go ahead, Parole 7. Any unit available to 1198 with, meet, with parole for a search, Affirmative parole. In the briefest period of time, either a large white GMC or Ford Bronco would appear to assist, whatever the call. As I pulled my Jeep into the Sheriff's Department's parking lot, it was evident that the week was well underway as the adjacent courthouse parking lot was now empty. I grabbed the paperwork I was about to drop off, and as I approached the front door, I was met by one of the more seasoned deputies, Sergeant Tommy Tomlinson, or more affectionately known as Uncle Tommy. We exchanged howdies, and I quickly filled him in on the reason for my impromptu visit. As we entered the substation's outer office, I was greeted by Joyce, the dispatcher, and was buzzed into the inner office. Joyce was dispatcher, secretary, confidant, and all-around errand runner. I chatted with her for a minute, complaining about the mountain traffic, to which she responded, Well, you know, years ago there was no traffic light at the intersection of 41 and 49. You literally took your life into your hands if you wanted to make a turn there. People would just as soon run you over as give you the right-of-way. Yeah, it was hell then, and it still is. At that moment, the front door slammed shut, the side door gave a buzz, and in walked my contact person, my information source for the whole mountain community, and especially for the local population of parolees who resided in the surrounding areas. Hey, what's up, little darling? I teased as he entered the office. The creek and my wages, he bellowed, as he winked at Joyce, who held his paycheck in a long white envelope and was handing it to him over the high counter. Ray Kern had been with the Bass Lake Sheriff's Department so long that he faced incessant teasing about being older than the dirt that held the pine-covered mountains together. In all actuality, the ruddy-complexioned and standing at approximately five foot eleven-ish, medium-framed deputy was usually attired in cowboy boots, slacks, and wore a tan cowboy hat pulled down at the brim that boasted a take-care-of-business attitude. His tan and off-white tweed blend western-cut jacket, light brown patches on the elbows gave the tough-talking deputy a casual appearance. His thick red mustache, unwaxed but well-groomed, turned up slightly higher on one side in a friendly, mischievous smirk as he bantered with Joyce about upcoming raises and promotions. He teased that it mattered little who was promoted as everyone knew that the feisty, late-fifties and more-than-efficient secretary ran the entire sheriff's department. "'Well,' he turned to me and said, "'what are we waiting for? Get your book and open it up. I gotta tell you about your guy Black. He's been passing more bad checks and—' "'Ray,' Joyce interrupted as the crackling and hissing of her radio continued, then a faint contact parole and squelch, hiss. Joyce continued, "'You'd better take this call.' The voices became more urgent, with squelching, hissing, and crackling continuing. Deputy Kern responded, I've got parole with me now. Will 1198 at the victim's residence in about 15. 
Somehow, the evening I had so looked forward to seemed to be slipping into oblivion. Well, you're a boy, Thompson. Not J.T., I asked, with a resignation to the obvious seriousness of the call. Just assaulted his girlfriend, he said. Want to go get him? Got no choice, I replied. Well, let's holster up. With an unspoken agreement, we were out the door, jumping into our individual vehicles. We raced through the curving mountain roads to the small community of North Fork. Once a thriving mountain community, North Fork was now a community where the locals, with long family histories in the nationally known logging industry, either commuted the hour plus down the mountain to work, did long-haul logging transport, or simply subsisted on local community resources. As we approached the victim's residence, we were careful navigating the roughly carved-out driveway, which was lined with new pine and cedar saplings, beyond the underbrush and rocks so large that they would have required heavy equipment in order to move them, was the familiar small mobile home that I had visited two weeks before. The family's alert system, a large mixed-breed dog which appeared to be a cross between a German shepherd and a basset hound, sat motionless on the steps and the entrance to the front door. He was squatty, but solid with large feet on which he plodded around. Even-tempered, that is, unless angered or alerting to strangers. Deputy Kern turned to me as he slammed his GMC's door shut. You know, old crow. Watch it, or he'll have your left leg for supper. I know. I had a run-in with him last week. They're going to have to get rid of him if I can't get to that front door. Deputy Kurt Smith, who was sitting in his Bronco drafting his initial report, filled us in on the assault which had happened the previous night. He was back this morning and threatened to kill her if she notified parole. Says he's not going back, the deputy reported. The door to the small mobile home creaked open. It appeared to be hanging on one hinge, and it was evident that it was not the original door. Before this morning, it had been attached by two hinges— Both of those hinges had been busted off by a force known only to the occupants of the small metal and wood-framed abode. Feather! My God! I exclaimed as she approached us, her clothes muddy, torn, and splattered with blood, her long black hair tousled, disheveled, and caked with a mixture of dried mud mixed with blood. What happened? Deputy Kern gave a long, low, and barely audible whistle and asked in an almost whisper, "'Girl, what the hell happened to you?' She slowly approached us, avoiding eye contact until she was only a couple of feet away. I instructed her to pull her hair back away from her face so that I could see all of her face. She reluctantly complied, murmuring in an almost unintelligible, "'I'm fine, really.' With restrained anger, both Deputy Kern and I attempted to elicit the information we needed. "'What sparked him this time?' the deputy asked. "'Oh, he was out partying, came home, and got pissed off because I wouldn't get him something to eat. We got into it, and when I tried to tell him to be quiet because the baby was sleeping, he busted up the house and then started on me. "'He didn't hurt the baby, just took out the door.' 
I tried to stop him because I didn't want no trouble for him. She lowered her eyes and stole a glance at me and quickly turned to Deputy Kern. I ran out the door after him and he turned around and just started beating on me. We both fell to the ground, but he got up and kicked me in the head with his steel toe boot while I was down. I kept begging him to stop, but he just kept yelling, nobody's sending me back, like he was crazy or something. We asked if she was going to be all right. She responded that her mother had taken to her emergency early that morning where they were instructed to call the sheriff. J.T. had been there only long enough to show his face and once again threatened that he'd be back to kill her should she contact parole. She continued to say that while her injuries appeared pretty substantial, they were really not so bad. The doctor says my eye socket is bruised and I have a slight concussion, so my eyes will be black for a few weeks, but nothing is broken. He says if my vision doesn't clear up, I'm going to need some more x-rays. My jaw and my teeth hurt, so he sent me to the dentist. And my mom's coming to get me in a while, but I got to clean up first. The sheriff told me not to clean up till you got here. Can I clean up now? Feather, I said. You cannot stay here. We can put you up in a safe place until... No, she quietly interrupted. I'm okay. My mom wants me with her till you pick him up. And I know he won't come back here because he knows it's over and he knows you're looking for him. Feather, do you know where J.T. is now? Deputy Kern asked. Not for sure, but he usually runs to his dad's because he knows they'll cover for him. Does he have any weapons? Guns? Knives? I asked. Not at his dad's, but he grabbed a knife when he ran. What kind of knife? I continued. Just a small knife he grabbed from the kitchen. Extending her palm out, she stated, About big as this. As we walked towards our vehicles, I said, Feather, I need to take pictures of your injuries. She consented, and I proceeded to photograph her battered and bruised face, the abrasions and the bruises on both her neck and face, her torn and bloodied clothing, and bruised arms and legs. J.T. Thompson, CDC number, David, 39168. I reflected as we raced the ten minutes or so to his dad's house. As is second nature in instances like this, I ran a mental picture of his face and rap sheet. Tall, American Indian, six foot two, 185 pounds, more or less. Once he began his substance abuse, he quickly deteriorated. At one point, he had dwindled down to an emaciated 140 pounds. J.T. Thompson had long black horse hair, which he wore in a long braid that traveled down beyond his belt. He oftentimes would top it with a rolled dark blue kerchief, which he wore neatly perched over his brow. Twenty-three years old, with an extremely limited employment history, congenial and intelligent, but with no high school. It was impossible to get to high school most of the winter through the heavy snows that blanketed the remote mountain area where his family had lived. J.T. grew up with his father and two older brothers. The brothers followed in their father's footsteps, building successful careers in the logging industry. J.T. Thompson, Sr., had quite a reputation as one of the three top loggers in the entire industry, able to provide well for his family until the mill closed down. The mill shutting down took its toll not only on J.T. and his family, but on the entire community as well. 
Shortly after its closing, J.T.'s wife of 32 years lost her battle with diabetes. It is still said that J.T. the Elder lost a little bit of his life and a little bit of his mind with his wife's passing. J.T. Jr.'s alcohol and drug problems progressed with numerous DUIs and arrests, even though he never owned a car. His last prison commitment was the result of his having assaulted a 17-year-old friend who refused to loan J.T. his car for a date that he had planned with Feather. The infant followed, and J.T. became the absent father, serving his three-year prison term and only recently re-paroled. Lost in thought, I found that we were now approaching the Thompson compound, labeled so because the elder J.T. being retired and, even in his increasing years, became the community child care station. Although Senior carried his own substance abuse nemesis, he was still considered the community anchor and remained highly respected as one of the wisest of the elders. As we drove up to the residence, a menagerie of dogs, five in total, and of mixed breeds, greeted us with the loudest collaborative barking, which echoed through the fragrant cedars and pines and over the mountain. The elder J.T. presented at the door, motioning for us to enter. He assured us that his son was not in the residence. He explained that he had in fact been there earlier, had run in, and had quickly changed his clothes and left. He escorted Deputy Kern and me to the back room of the residence. As we entered the small room, we observed the discarded muddy and bloody clothing strewn about the floor. "'What's he got on now?' Deputy Kern asked. "'Blue and white plaid shirt, some of my old jeans,' he responded. "'How about shoes?' I asked. "'Same old steel-toe work boots he always has.' As we retraced our steps, muddy footprints were visible throughout the house, ending at the back door and down the steps. "'He said you'd come looking for him.' "'What time did he come by?' I asked. "'Oh, about an hour ago,' the elder replied. "'The muddy footprints continued.' and were visible enough to show the direction of travel. J.T. was heading straight toward the water, and if we had no backup, we would, in fact, lose him. Certainly because the forest was dense with vegetation and the underbrush thick enough to swallow up any trace of his footprints. "'Looks like we're headed toward the creek,' offered Deputy Kern. "'Want to call in the chopper?' "'Vegetation's too thick. We'll never find him that way.' "'What about canine?' he asked. "'Got anyone on?' "'Don't know, but we can give it a try,' he responded. "'I loved my work when we had to assist from the canine units. "'They were so effective.' "'Deputy Kern walked over to his vehicle and called for the canine unit "'and any available unit in the immediate area. "'He reported back that there was only one unit available "'approximately ten minutes away, "'and that the canine unit was gone for the day.' I questioned the likelihood of our success given the difficulty in navigating the terrain, however surmised that this was it. Any tracks available now certainly would be non-existent with the expected evening showers. We started up the hill with the elder J.T. following closely behind. Mr. Thompson, I said, I need you to go back to your home and wait. We'll need you to call the sheriff's department if your son shows back up there. "'Okay,' he responded, "'but you'll need to take care up at that stream. "'Bears come to sleep in them caves down there "'where the river starts to tunnel.' 
Will do. Thanks for your help, I responded, as the feeling of dread left my knees weak. We began to follow the muddy tracks up the mountain with direction of travel confirmed. The river. As we climbed, the mud became thicker and more slippery. The sound of the rushing water was becoming more audible. Deputy Kern shouted from approximately 20 feet away, I'm going to get the truck and drive over the bridge. See if he comes out there. Bernardi's on his way with Max. What a relief, I thought. Help is on the way. I continued my climb and turned to look over my shoulder. As the cloud of dust wound up the narrow road, I counted not one, but three Ford Broncos charging up the hill. I raced back to the roadway to meet with the first deputy and fill him in. To my horror, as I spoke to the deputy, I glanced over his shoulder and saw a smaller cloud of dust. Coming up the mountain, skipping and singing, with seven or eight children behind, all skipping and singing, was the elder J.T. Thompson, and behind them, all of the dogs from the compound. My God, I thought, straight out of the sound of music. Mr. Thompson, I shouted to no avail. Mr. Thompson, get the kids back to the house. No luck. Jim, I tried to quickly fill in. We followed the tracks to the edge of the river where it begins to tunnel. Okay, got it. Max and I'll have a look. Jim, forgetting what the deputy did for a living and feeling a sense of responsibility for both him and his partner, I'll go with you. Better yet, he said, just go so they don't interfere with me and my partner. I'd appreciate it if you can get the old man to lock up those dogs. Done, I said as I raced back to my jeep. I jumped in and headed toward the group who are now about 50 feet away. The elder J.T., the kids, and the dogs all had to be ushered back to the residence to assure that no one got hurt. I knew that if the dogs got close to Max, there would be a huge problem. Driving down the path to the spontaneous parade, I quickly rode down my window and shouted instruction to the elder J.T., while still singing, he nodded an aha to me, abruptly turned, and went skipping down the hill with his entourage and tow. As I raced my jeep back up the hill, I heard the crackle of my radio, and before anything else, the loud barking of the dog. Max was alerting. The deputy's voice could be heard in a quiet whisper. I think we've got him. Continued barking, then the loud command. Come on out before I let my partner get a hold of you. Continued barking. Then, Madeira, we are code four with one in custody. I saw nothing as I arrived Creekside. However, I could hear Max. I stood on the bank of the creek, looking over the edge and down toward the entrance of the tunnel. The vegetation around the opening to the tunnel wound around and down, making a huge cave-like entrance to the mountainside that the creek ran directly through. Straight out of Sleepy Hollow, I thought. Deputy Jim Bernardi and his partner Max emerged with their six-foot catch. It was evident who the hero of the day was. After securing his passenger in his vehicle, Deputy Bernardi walked gingerly over to me with a big grin on his face and said, you know, when Max alerted, I pointed my flashlight at this big rock your guy was hiding behind and yelled, Come on out before I let my partner get a hold of you. 
J.T. jumps right up with his hand straight up in the air and says, Please, Mr. Sheriff, please don't let that big old dog get no bite out of me. Max, our hero for the day, was calmly lapping up water, his treat for a job well done. Okay, Max, load up, his partner commanded. Max, the great big Rottweiler, simply hopped into the front seat of the Ford Bronco and made himself comfortable for the long ride home. was Erlene Holguin reading her memoir, The North Fork Caper, a story of how she and several of her fellow deputies, not to forget the leading deputy, Max, that fabulous Rottweiler, who I guess is really the hero of Erlene's story, were able to apprehend J.T. Thompson, a vicious wife-beater. We'd like to think that because this area in the foothills is so unique and so beautiful that there is no criminality up there. But then Earlene reminds us that, just like about everywhere else, you need a good police force to deal with people who unfortunately decide to break the law. These, then, were the kinds of experiences that were a part of Earlene's daily life for all those years as a parole agent. And we thank her for her service. But then, once you pass Bass Lake and you get back on Highway 41 heading northeast, in just about an hour or so, you get right into beautiful Yosemite. And that's the subject of our next writer's story, world-famous Yosemite National Park, an area that attracts millions of visitors each and every year. Our writer is Janice Stevens, and here she is, Janice Stevens reading... Yosemite, Spiritual Renewal. Yosemite, Spiritual Renewal. Not far from Mariposa on Highway 140, on the left I pick up the meandering Merced River, gentle waters bubbling over river rocks beneath banks of blooming redbud and mock orange. I follow the river slightly northwest and catch the changing mood of the water as the river widens and separates narrow strips of land into islands. The rapids forcefully create foamy miniature waterfalls, forerunners to the abundant cascades of water fed by the rapid snowmelt from winter storms. Legend says that the Merced River, named so by the white man to mean River of Mercy, was called Wakala by the Awanichi Indians. Mystical mermaids govern the temperamental moods of the Wakala, at times quiet and peaceful, when the spirits are content or turbulent and violent, raging at their whim. Yosemite Valley in early summer is vibrant with Pacific dogwood and lush azaleas, Golden poppies, cow parsnips, and blue lupins spot the meadows with the last remnants of spring. The crisp morning air refreshes me, and I stop my car just past the overhanging arch rock where Highway 120 merges into 140. 
It is here that I pick up the river on my right side, and the deep green water suggests a depth and energetic current causing the rapids to bounce over boulders and down trees and brush in a seemingly intense journey. Yosemite is the adventure of my childhood, the peaceful retreat of adulthood. Memories return of two weeks spent in the summertime tent living at Camp 14. I remember as a teenager piling into the car at 5 o'clock on a Saturday morning to get an early start from Santa Cruz for the five or so hour drive to Yosemite. My sister Denny and brother Rick and I play cards in the back seat, hoping to shorten the trip somehow, or perhaps getting a head start on the marathon card games we would soon play with neighboring campers in the evenings. Upon arriving, we drive through the valley to our favorite campsite, either Camp 12 or Camp 14, and we search out the perfect spot to begin preparation for our stay. Once the tent is set up nearby the riverbank, we gather kindling and firewood to feed the fire for cooking and warmth and make our last-minute purchases at the village store. With the camping chores complete, we are off to explore. Restless from the hours of sitting, we heed the lure of a mountain hike, and we walk the mile or so to Happy Isles, Mirror Lake, to begin our climb to the falls. The trail leading by Vernal Falls is easy and well-traveled, winding up the mountain with the river flowing by. Close to the top of Vernal Falls, the Merced River drops 317 feet in cascading misty water, dampening our clothes but not our enthusiasm. We reach the top of the falls and look down on the raging water crashing over boulders thrown carelessly here and there from the glaciers that carved out Yosemite. We are aware of the dramatic beauty, but yet an ominous caution pervades our enjoyment. We have heard the stories of the glistening rocks and cool inviting water, luring many too foolish to be wary, and still above Nevada Falls beckons. We reach for the second leg of the journey, the trail much steeper and more treacherous. We climb silently, with only an encouraging comment from a hiker returning from the top. We walk with trepidation as we climb, realizing how close the slippery gravel trail is to the steep mountainside. Once we reach the top, we gaze out and down at the majesty and power of the falls dropping a dramatic 594 feet of violent force. The Indians called it Yowipi, which means Twisted Falls. We scan a panoramic view of granite mountains and cliffs, all well worth our strenuous efforts. Returning to camp, exhausted but in some way rejuvenated, our evening brings an early dinner of barbecued hot dogs or hamburgers, rich with all the fixings, a watermelon bound and tied to a nearby tree kept cool and refreshing in the icy cold river water. The smell and the air from foods cooked over an open fire blend with a clean, fresh pine smell, and soon a smoky haze settles over the camp. As the sun drops, a voice cries out, Elmer, and the name repeats up and down the riverbank. I remember hearing the story of how a little five-year-old boy wandered away from camp. His mother called out to him, and eager to help, people cast the name up and down the riverbanks until finally the wayward boy was found. The symbolic sound of Elmer at night is a reminder to all families to gather in their children. But the best is yet to come, because as soon as it is sufficiently dark, all eyes turn to the granite mountain above Curry Village. The excitement of seeing the falls means an after-dinner walk to the open meadow to get a clear view. 
We wait in silence for the words, Let the fire fall. Embers from a large bonfire burned precisely for this purpose fall from the top of Glacier Point, cascading down against the granite to a slab below. We watch and awe till the last ember burns itself out, and then we walk slowly back to the campsite. Our embers remaining from the barbecue beckon us for s'mores or roasted marshmallows. In the peaceful camaraderie of the neighbors congregated around the fire, conversations ebb and flow until, with the last yawn, the grown-ups gather in the little ones and head to nearby tents. We teens settle in for hours under the flickering glow of the Coleman lantern for card games of canasta, rummy, and poker. Acorns gathered from the grove of black oak or borrowed matchsticks become our tokens to gamble, and we fight as hard to win them as if they represent great wealth. When the last wick burns out, we say our good nights to our new friends. In the pitch black of the night, I close my eyes, warm in my sleeping bag inside the tent, and am lulled by the sounds of the water rushing by. Our two-week stay is carefully planned out to glean as much adventure from each day as we can. The next morning, we sit around the campfire for an early breakfast stir-fried potatoes, bacon and eggs, and freshly squeezed orange juice, and listen to my dad read the Bible. It is Sunday, and a church service is expected. We rarely attend the Yosemite Chapel, however, preferring to make up our own service. Our self-styled worship warrants the soft singing of hymns, such as It Is Well With My Soul, the old rugged cross, and especially fitting, I Come to the Garden Alone. After church, the main event of the day is rafting down the river if it's a warm, sunny day. Denny and I, linking our air mattresses together to keep from getting separated, desperately try not to fall into the chilling, fast-moving water. Even so, the warmth of the sun dries us, and we continue on to our parents' prearranged meeting with the car. We know if we float on by, the walk back will be cold and tiring. A day spent rafting and floating in the river usually means an early evening for us, but the firefall is too unique to miss, and the card games take precedence over sleep. Other days, we venture away from camp to listen to the rangers talk and watch the slides, educating us in such a subtle way about the Native American Indians who settled in Yosemite Valley long before white man disrupted their lives. We find ourselves at the visitor center in the Indian village and talk to Julia Parker, the basket weaver, and learn the ways of the Indians. We learn how the culture is disappearing and hear the reverence for Mother Earth in Julia's words. We resolve to heed her admonition to respect our ways, as she said. We discover the names of plants and how to recognize and appreciate how they're used in foods such as manzanita that provides greenery but also berries to eat raw or to mash into cider. Julia demonstrates the intricate coiling and twining of a variety of branches into baskets of pattern and purposeful design. Branches from redbud, willow, hazel, maple, pine, oak, deerbrush, and squawbush are selected and woven together depending on the use of the baskets. Listening attentively to a natural storyteller, we welcome the Indian legends she narrates that give us rich, Colorful descriptions of the Awanichis, Miwok, and Mono Indians, the lore that offers a mythical description of how the granite monoliths and waterfalls found form. 
Another day of hiking finds us on our way to the top of Yosemite Falls. An easy walk up a slight incline to the bridge at the foot of the first waterfall, the magnificent free fall from a height of 2,425 feet presents an awe-inspiring sight. While most tourists don't climb the intense trail to the top of Yosemite Falls, we, of course, want to do it all. Like the top of Nevada Falls, this, too, offers a bird's-eye view from a different perspective. The Merced River flows not much wider than a pencil line, and the valley floor appears as a variety of matted greens. The roar of the turbulent, rushing water dropping to the river below thrills us even as we are alert to the danger in the seemingly quiet water of Yosemite Creek before it drops in an abundance of white, raging water. Yosemite wildlife is abundant, and we search the valley and surrounding mountainsides for movement. We know deer graze in the meadows, and coyotes and fox dart about, rarely too intimidating. If we are quiet and still at dusk, deer come out to the water's edge. Brown bear roam the mountains, and we purposely make an occasional run to the dump to see if the bears come down to scavenge through the rubbish. We quite often spot or hear a bear wandering through the campground looking for and perhaps finding food left out by careless campers. All too soon, our vacation comes to an end. In a frenzy of last-minute exchanges of addresses with our camping friends and tentative plans to gather in Yosemite the following year, We vow to keep in touch, and sometimes we do. With reluctance, we disassemble the tents, carefully empty trash and enclosed containers to not entice the bears, and douse any smoldering embers with river water. This magical land of the Indian legends remains with me year after year as I return to the peace and solitude of Yosemite. Each time I return, I gradually peel the layers of fading memories back to those summer days as a teenager. Although the hikes are more difficult now than when I was in my youth, and Mirror Lake is now Mirror Meadow, abundant with lush grasses and wildflowers of wild ginger and waterfall buttercups, I am drawn to the landscape planted by the Creator's hand. Wildflowers, they say, but their random placement speaks to order of a divine sort. Ralph W. Emerson, in his journal of October 13, 1837, states, What is, appears. Go out to walk with a painter, and you shall see for the first time groups, colors, clouds, and keepings, and shall have the pleasure of discovering resources in a hitherto barren ground, of finding as good as a new sense in such skill to use an old one. Today, the one-way road leaving the valley floor takes me to El Capitan, Cathedral Rock, and Cathedral Spires. I, too, stand with others in the El Capitan Meadow and search the faces of the monoliths for climbers. I continue my drive out of the valley, stopping for a turnout at Tunnel View to enjoy the spectacular scenery of Half Dome, El Capitan, the Three Brothers, and Bridalville Falls, all coming together in a striking contrast of granite, greenery, and water. I think of the words of John Muir, No temple made with hands can compare with Yosemite. Every rock in its walls seems to glow with life. Some lean back in majestic repose. I divert from the main road to Glacier Point, where snow remains in the shadows of rocks and trees. I walk the short distance to the lookout with its phenomenal view of Half Dome. 
Everything on the valley floor appears in miniature, but the granite mountains in their massive grandeur continue to hold court. I return to Highway 41 and find deer grazing in the Wawona Meadows. I stop to watch them, then to walk across the covered bridge to see the river below. Across from the landmark Wawona Hotel, campsites line the riverbank, and children play Catch Me If You Can, nimbly dancing across the rocks in the water. The water is shallow, calm, with gentle rapids. Enjoying a leisurely drive, I eventually reach Mariposa Grove. Under a clear blue sky, the ageless, giant sequoias with their redwood trunks rising hundreds of feet into the air stand tall and majestic. I leisurely walk the narrow trails from one to another, rereading the placards describing the significance of the particular trees and trace the rings around the trunks, suggesting their immortality. Yet the scars that mar the surface remind me that ancient as they are, a fierce wildfire leaves testament that they too have a lifespan. I inhale the soothing and refreshing scent of foliage and pine, and am reluctant to leave the wilderness of serenity and beauty. James Fenimore Cooper, in his monumental novel Pioneers, expresses Natty Bumpo's yearning and deep love of nature in the words, When I felt lonesome, I would go into the Catskills and spend a few days on that hill. What see you when you get there? asked Edwards. Creation, lad. All creation, said Natty. How should a man who has lived in towns know anything about the wonders of the woods? None know how often the hand of God is seen in the wilderness. I leave Yosemite with the smell of the forest and the sounds of rushing water in my mind. I wonder if the respite I've been given will be enough to last until I return again where I too can see the hand of God in the wilderness. So there you have it, folks, two fine writers giving us some intriguing descriptions, unknown facts, and real-life stories about that huge piece of geography that sits just to the east of us, an area that unfortunately is not without some hostile human behavior, but also an area like world-famous Yosemite with its gorgeous mountains, unforgettable views, and inspirational memories. Friends, our two writers tonight were Erlene Holguin, who, as we stated, is a retired parole officer and who, incidentally, took some memoir writing classes from our second writer, Janice Stevens. As you might remember, we've had Janice on before. Not only is she known for being a fine teacher and mentor, but also for her own ability as a writer. Later on this year, we'll be featuring some stories from World War II veterans who were a part of a group who, under Janice's tutelage, put together a whole book of stories and memoirs from World War II. Thanks again, Erlene and Janice, for two informative and moving stories. We hope this will not be the last time that we have you on our show. And so we come to the end of another episode of Valley Writers Read, Thank you for tuning in. 
If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story, just go online to kvpr.org and click on Archived Audio. Next week, our writer will be Howard Hendricks. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a weekly series produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk for Valley Public Radio. Please join us again next Wednesday at the same time for another edition of Valley Writers Read.